Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we are pleased to welcome Sebastian Kenny. Kenny is a PhD candidate in the DOS lab at, at the Department of Chemistry in Purdue University. And he does research working with the Ubiquitin system, or as he just told us, the kiss of death. So <laughs> we are excited. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know, I'm a little nervous about this. I, I, I'm not sure what this system is, but to find out somebody's that we're interviewing research is the kiss of death is <laughs> pretty intriguing. Yes. Uh, so I'll let you explain so that we know. Uh, right now, I'm just happy we're not in the same room because that makes sense. <laughs> well, okay. So the kiss of death, um, even though it's called the kiss of death, it's actually a good thing that we have that okay. in our system, right? And so um, basically, just a little, as a background, you know, um, we have proteins in our cells, right? And um, proteins are important players in our um, system because they are pretty much the machines, the molecular machines or the workers of our cells, if you may, right? And so you can think of the cell sort of like as Purdue University, for example, right? Um, in Purdue University, there are people who um, works to manage all of the data. Um, there are people that works as, you know, the law enforcers. Um, police officers and so forth, right? And there are also um, people that, um, you know, mitigates risks and stuff like that, you know, protect Purdue people and so forth. So same thing happens in our cells, right? We have um, proteins that does all of that work. So, you know, you probably heard from other researchers um, that does work on other different proteins. Um, they, they study specific things. Now, what happens is, um, our proteins doesn't always stay good, right? And why, why do I say that? Sometimes they grow old and when they grow old or, you know, it doesn't have to be growing old. Um, let's say, you know, the protein gets a mutation from, you know, radiation damage, um, you know, sunbathing, sunbathing for too long, something like that, right? What happens is, you know, these proteins get bad, right? And so then if they are bad and they still exist in our cells, right? Um, the ubiquitous or, it, it, it won't be good for our cells, right? You could probably see why that is. What, what happens is our cells know how to do the, how to mitigate this. And so what they do is they um, tag this, you know, rogue protein or protein gone bad, right? With ubiquitin. And what happens is this attachment of ubiquitin um, leads to so many different signaling pathways. And so when I say signaling pathways, one of them is the protein degradation pathway. And so it pretty much just, um, you know, when you attach this ubiquitin or supply the kiss of death, hence where it gets its name from, right? Um, the protein gets pulled to this, um, or um, protein in our cell, other protein, okay, called the proteosome. And the proteosome is pretty much the protein shredder. And so once it is brought over to the proteosome, right, um, that protein is shredded and it's non-existent in our system anymore. Um, if, you know, I give it in terms of analogy, let's say someone like a worker at Purdue University has gone rogue, right? Um, what ubiquitin does is ubiquitin is again, like the security guards or the police officers, they, you know, basically pull this um, 
rogue worker at Purdue University either, well, to jail is just keeping them there, but instead of just keeping it to jail, it's sort of like um, punishing them by the death sentence in a sense, <laughs> so that they're not present anymore. <laughs> but of course, you can see how that's very important in ourselves, right? Because we need to regulate um, this good balance. So hence the name, um, the kiss of death. So did you say that our, our cells will just, on their own, they will tag these. I mean, that's like a normal part of our process, like of cells process. Yeah, yeah. So um, great question. What what our cells do is um, the attachment of ubiquitin. Yes, to the short answer to that is yes. Okay. Um, our cells have um, three proteins um, that sort of works. They they sort of like relay ubiquitin. It's like a relay race, right? Um, they pass it on from E1 to E2 to E3. Um, the specifics of it, you know, I can get into details with, but um, for the purpose of this, um, basically it's a relay between um, ubiquitin to um, ubiquitin gets activated by E1, and then it um, E1 transfers it over to E2, or E2 takes it from the E1. And then E3 takes it from the E2, or you know, um, the E2 usually actually binds to the E3, um, and the E3 is what determines what protein in our cells needs to be ubiquitinated. And so there's so many different proteins in our cells, right? So um, the E3 actually acts as a specificity factor. Um, it you know chooses specifically what do I want to ubiquitinate, right? And there's actually 600 and there's more discovered, um, you know, E3 ligases or E3 enzymes um, discovered um, to date and ongoing, so yeah. Okay, so it, if my body it detects it, it, it's the, within each cell, um, the things that aren't going right, and so uh, protein's gone bad, I guess. But uh, if it does that automatically, what is your goal? What are you trying to do with researching and studying this? Right. Yeah. So um, in our lab, so in, in the DOS lab, um, we, we find this um, important or like interesting rather um, knowledge on ubiquitin. And, you know, recently um, in the past, you know, 20 years or something like that, um, we've discovered more and more that pathogens so when I say pathogens, I mean bacteria and viruses, right? Um, they produce proteins that hijack the ubiquitin system. And so why is this important, right? Um, the ubiquitin system is only present in eukaryotic organisms, meaning, you know, us humans, um, plants, and so forth. These pathogens, bacteria, and viruses, they don't have the ubiquitin system on their own, right? But it turns out um, they can still code and produce proteins that hijacks the ubiquitin system. Why, why is that important, right? Um, and why is it even interesting? It's, it's interesting because um, to think about it, right, um, you can think of this pathogens, um, bacteria and viruses to be like thieves wanting to infiltrate. Um, again, I use the cell as like Purdue University, right? To infiltrate um, Purdue University or um, the cell. Now, of course, we already have all of our systems in place, you know, to make sure that um, nothing, you know, ever harms us in a way, right? Um, to, you know, keep our system going. And so um, pathogens know this and pathogens need to look at, okay, what are the system in place that's in there that is present to kick me out? And if I know what that is, 
I will, you know, um, do something so that I can work around it, right? And so what happens is um, with the ubiquitin system, um, when, um, when pathogens infiltrate our cells, right? Um, our, our cells know this and our cells usually undergo this thing called synophagy. And so synophagy is when the cell kills itself because if it doesn't kill itself, um, then, you know, this virus or bacteria can survive. And if they survive, then it can, you know, actually be more infectious to other cells and so forth, right? So what this, um, and the ubiquitin system is in play um, with regards to this. What turns out to happen is, you know, this pathogens, as I mentioned earlier, produces proteins that hijacks the system. So let me, let me just give you some examples. Um, chlamydia, which is a common known STD, right? Um, when chlamydia infects um, the cells, right, turns out it produces this um, protein called dubs. Dubs are deubiquitinases, not the this dub that you know people do these days. Um, so deubiquitinases, what happens is, as the name suggests, it cleaves off the ubiquitin chain um, that is already built. So. You can imagine that, for example, right, um, chlamydia attacks the cell, it invades it, right, and then the immune system needs to start kicking in, and so the ubiquitin, you know, um, is being relayed and tagged onto the different um, proteins that it needs to be tagged on, right? Mm -hmm. What happens is chlamydia stops it by, okay, never mind, I'm just going to cleave you off over there, and because I'm cleaving you off, then, you know, the signaling and the response doesn't happen because it's like, oh, wait, was that a false alarm? that do we are we not needed anymore and so the cell decides to just stay in like you know um it's normal as if there's nothing going on so it's sort of like a um they are using the ubiquitin system um what's the idiom like a wolf in a sheep's fur or something like that uh -huh. yeah. yeah so so yeah that um our research focuses on that um and so we we just want to know how these proteins that they produce, right, to hijack the ubiquitin system, how do they work? And so some of the systems that I mentioned earlier um, is um, ones that I've worked with, um, chlamydia being one of them. My thesis project itself is on human papillomavirus because human papillomavirus also does, um, also produces a protein that hijacks the ubiquitin system in one way or another, not exactly the same. And um, Legionella pneumophila is one that, you know, um, a lot of people in our lab is doing. But it's, you know, when we delve deeper into it, it's, it's kind of interesting to see how um, these proteins actually work in so many different modes. You know, I only described one, but there are hundreds, if not more, ways that they um, hijack the ubiquitin system. So, yeah. That's really cool. That is. It's, uh, it's I guess I, I never thought about the, the cells themselves having this, being like a system of things working. It, I had, they just seemed too small and simple for that to me. And so it's, it's like, I'm like, huh, that's really cool. Then the fact that you're able to study one small part of that, mm -hmm. it, I think is just absolutely amazing. Are you, what type of instrumentation and, and observation are you to be able to see the function characters within a cell? How, how can you go about actually studying that? Because to me, that kind of blows yeah. my mind a little bit. I, I, it's, you'll have to help me here. <laughs> 
Right, of course, of course. So um, one, one way that our lab studies proteins, right? Um, it, so our lab is a structural um, entomology lab. And so um, what that means is, whoops, my dog just unplugged my laptop charger. <laughs> so um, our lab is a structural enzymology lab. And so um, being a structural enzymology lab, we are interested in knowing what the structure of these proteins are, okay? And so um, by knowing the structure, we can sort of know um, how the enzyme or the protein functions, right? It's sort of like, um, let's say, you know, you try to visualize a protein and then it looks like a Pac-Man, for example, right? Then you can sort of probably deduce that, okay, that protein's probably gonna like fold into something or like gnaw on something, you know? Um, of course, that's an oversimplification. It doesn't really work like that. But knowing the structure sort of know, um, gives you an idea on how the protein functions, especially because, you know, there's been prior work and, um, with proteins, when they fold, there's always different domains, right? And different domains just means different parts on the protein, okay? And if there's different parts on the protein, um, usually right now, we can try to compare with known protein structures. Mm -hmm. If they look similar to it, or the sequence of the amino acid on the protein is pretty similar, then we can probably deduce that, oh, it does a pretty similar function. And if it does a pretty similar function, then at least we know how they inhibit. So with regards to structure, the way that we come um, or we approach it is we use X-ray crystallography, um, which pretty much means us growing the crystals of the protein. And then we shoot it with X-ray lasers to get the electron density, you know, all of that um, very heavy biophysics um, topic. And then we can deduce what, you know, the protein actually looks like. Another way that, you know, our lab is starting to get into and um, I've been doing and trying to get my hands on um, more is um, cryo-EM. And so cryo-EM is um, cryo-electron microscopy. And um, this is a technique that's, you know, just been a rising star. Um, it's simpler in a way than X-ray crystallography because you don't need as much sample. You, um, you don't need to purify as much protein. And um, all you have to do is you put them on a grid and then you visualize them instead of a, on a light microscope, it's an electron microscope. So uh, you can actually see atomic um, details in a way. Um, yeah, so um, we, we use that. And then to study its activities, we use many different other techniques. So our lab is also a biophysics lab. Um, I'm lucky to be part of the biophysics, molecular biophysics training program. Um, which is an NIH T32 um, um, fellowship. And we've, we've really been able to study a lot of different things. So for example, like if we want to study how the effector proteins or the proteins that this pathogens produce interact with other proteins, we can use uh, methods to measure their binding affinity, meaning how tight do they you know, bind to the other proteins in the ubiquitin system, for example, and so forth. Yeah, there's you know a multitude of techniques that we can use, um, but I would say the main ones are really this um, structural methods because we do want to see what the structures look like. I guess just to add to that, um, in a way, you can think of how beneficial this is in terms of drug development, right? If let's say, for example, you want to target the specific proteins, you know. Um, so that you don't get as severe of an effect from
from uh, the infectious of like uh, the infection of like this pathogen knowing the structure of this protein sort of gives you a hint on like where the weak spots are right it's sort of like if you know your brother or your sister is very ticklish on the sides right then you can attack specifically over there um you know to um weaken them or something like that right and so same thing with this proteins if you know the structure you know what it looks like you can target them better wow now what is the scale it sounds a lot smaller uh, Sarah, I'll let you jump in. I've already started. So uh, uh, it sounds a lot. So, I mean, I'm thinking in my head, oh, I remember seeing cells. I remember taking biology, you know, and looking at plant cells through a microscope. But it sounds like you're looking at things, obviously, a, a lot smaller than that. What scale are you working at with those? Um, wow. <laughs> Very small scale. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's interesting, right? The discussion of size is, you know, proteins are so small. Um, so yes, the cells are small when um, compared to us, right? And then um, the proteins in the cells are of course way smaller than that. It's like, um, I'm trying to think, it's, it's in the nanometer scale. Um, so like, you know, um, well, I don't expect you to know off the top of your head the yeah. exact. <laughs> of course, all, all proteins are, um, you know, different. Ubiquitin being a very small protein, it's even, you know, um, in the sub nanometer um, scale, I would say, probably. Um, but the system that I work with is around um, 10 nanometers, um, which is a very small scale. But, you know, um, to think, to put it in perspective, right, it seems very small to us. Um, but then it's like if we zoom out from us, right? Um, we really are also only small. It, wow, this is very philosophical. Um, we are really a small being in this, you know, huge Earth. And you know, like in terms of the galaxy, they probably see the Earth, and it's like, oh, what's that small thing, right? But really, you know, uh, we're in there, and then inside of us, there's the cells, and then the cells itself contains proteins, and you know, all of this materials. It's it's a very interesting thing to ponder about. <laughs> that is, that's a very, very insightful. <laughs> um, when you're preparing your samples, now would you, as, as a researcher, would you um, run the x-ray crystallography yourself or actually like use the cryo EM? I'm so fascinated by this cryogenic electron microscopy. I do, and then do we have that here at Purdue or are those samples shipped off and you receive those back? Right. That's right. a lot of questions. I, don't, yeah, I wasn't yeah, sure which okay. one. So uh, with the x-ray crystallography, right, um, we do everything, we grow our crystals and everything, but of course, um, to get, you know, a very fine beam of x-ray, it's not something that's easy. We have an in-house source, right, but um, actually at Purdue, we're pretty lucky that we're only located two hours away from um, the Argonne National Lab or the Advanced phot um, Photon Source, mm -hmm. and um, so we usually, as a lab, um, of course, pre-COVID, um, would take trips to go over there and shoot our crystals over there. And so, you know, the facility is free um, of charge for us to use, right? We just go there, we submit our samples, and then we shoot them by ourselves um, with, of course, support from there, which is a great thing. Um, with regards to the cryo-EM, um, we do have a facility over here. So uh, we are actually one of the um, consortiums that's in located in the Midwest. So, you know, people from IU would also come to use our um, facility and other universities too. Um, we have three 
three microscopes now, um, pretty, you know, really, really good microscopes. Um, and so I've, I've just been going over there um, after I prepare my samples, I freeze my grids over there. Um, and so grids are pretty much, if, if you do light microscopy, we use cover slips and those, you know, um, glass slips, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with electron microscopy, because everything is in the small scale, you use this grids actually. I have a grid over here. Oh, oops. You see the circles over here? I hope they don't fall over. There, you oh, see yeah. it? Yeah. Those are so, yep, they're very tiny. And so um, those grids um, is what we apply our samples on. And then um, we put them on the electron microscope and then the electron beam just go, um, goes, or like it goes through the sample over there so that we can visualize it. So, um, you know, in a way it, it is very similar to a microscope. It does the same thing, but you know, of course the system is pretty different. Instead of using lenses, you use electromagnets and so forth. Um, but um, yes, we do have a facility for that and we have really good support for that. Um, so I've been lucky to, you know, um, just been practicing this skill over here. Yeah. Well, I paused because I don't want to cut you off again, Sarah. I didn't want to go. Sorry. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, so what's next? What's next? Well, you said, I don't know how far you are. I know you're researching and trying to figure out the structures. And so what's the next step in this? Where, where are you going next? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> so, okay. I, I do know what I want to do, I guess, in terms of career. Um, for myself, so um, I'm. I I want to finish off with an MD PhD degree, meaning that you know I'll I'll finish my PhD and then hopefully I'll get my MD um, somewhere after this. Um, but I I really do like research. Um, I'm I'm a talker as you can probably see, and so um, the the reason that I wanted an MD PhD is because I wanted that patient interaction, um, which I think is very important. I've been volunteering at the hospital, um, Franciscan Health over here. And, you know, just talking to the patients and other volunteers and the doctors over there, it, it sort of gives me life um, because, you know, work in the lab is fun and, you know, you get to learn new stuff, but then um, it gets really repetitive because, you know, experiments don't always work their first time, right? Otherwise I'd be done and, you know, be finished with my PhD, but that's not the sweet case, right? Um, it's very repetitive and um, I need, you know, ways that I can also um, contribute and know that I am contributing in the real world and that's why I'm volunteering. But anyways, um, so MD, PhD is sort of the end goal, but I do want to work in a research institution um, or a teaching institution where I can practice medicine, um, teach um, classes if possible, and also do research. So that's that's sort of where the long-term goal is. So in PhD, that's like, uh, so you're wanting to be a, a specialist, a, a type of doctor then eventually? Yeah, at some point, yes. Okay, in specializing in? Um, that is something to discern about still, but um, I'm really looking at <laughs> pediatric surgery. Um, I love kids, um, and you know, they they also bring me joy. Um, they're you know, they're happiness all the time, even though they cry a lot too. Um, that is something that um, 
is very infectious, just like this pathogens, right? And so that's, um, I want to still have that joy, um, no matter what um, stage of life I'm in, I guess. So um, that's why pediatric surgery is like one of the things that I'm looking into. It, so how often, it's, it, I guess I know a couple of doctors, but I never asked them what they did before they actually had a practice. How often uh, will uh, would a specialist start off like in a lab, like you're doing, you're in a, a chemistry lab, or the, I don't know, I, it's, I don't know how many, I wanna say biochemistry, but I think it's a lot deeper than that. And so uh, how often would a medical doctor start off in a lab like this doing research before they became? I think um, the emphasis on research has been <clears throat> um, growing um, in you know, medical schools everywhere from, you know, um, at least how I've, you know, screened schools and everything, it seems that they always put an emphasis usually on their, you know, third year where they do um, full research or something like that, or during their stay, they have to, you know, start working on a project. It's probably not as, you know, intense as a PhD itself, because with a PhD, you really have only one thing to focus on, which is your research, right? With um, medical school, you have to do so many other stuff. So of course, I think there's always exposure and um, people are aware of what they do. But then um, I, I'm, I'm actually not sure if I could answer, you know, how much, how many people um, actually does, you know, a PhD just like me or like how much does an MD PhD um, together or something like that, yeah. I think that is such an awesome idea then because it just seems like, well, with how well, how personable you are to be able to understand the research side and then put it in a way to explain it to your patients someday that, that to help them understand what's going on. I think that could be very empowering for the patient. Right. And so that's also one of the motivations on like why I decided to do a PhD first. Um, I feel like if I understand the system, you know, in its molecular basis and like, you know, the whole details of it, um, it would make it easier for me to understand, like me personally, right, to understand what's going on, but also um, to be a better communicator to, uh, you know, the patients or, you know, whoever I have to explain the science to. Because as you know, explaining science isn't always the easiest thing, especially with the many jargons that are always thrown out there, so yeah. Oh, that's cool. Well, this has just been so exciting to learn about this, <laughs> about the ubiquitin proteins and, and that what they do as part of the cell and then what you're looking at. We really appreciate. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. We appreciate your time. This is really cool. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.